I want to stay with uh, Pastor Pete's theme during this Lenten season, the theme of following Jesus. So for Jesus and his disciples, the journey uh, begins in Galilee. From the humble uh, beginnings in Galilee, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ has spread to the ends of the earth. It has spread all the way down to you and me here this morning in this room today. So I have a question for us to consider for today. Are you willing to follow Jesus as your divine physician? Because Jesus is a healer. And Jesus is the physician that we need. Now, when I was younger, I never thought much about going to see the doctor on a regular basis. But as, I, as I'm aging, uh, I discover you know, that those annual uh, physicals are important. And I can't say that I really enjoy going to my primary care physician. Now, we're friends and we do a lot of chit-chatting, but when he gets down to business of holding me accountable, and I really don't like that part, you know, especially when in the previous visit he says, uh, you need to lose weight. And then he says, you know, you need to do exercise every day. And by the way, cut your caffeine consumption, you know. Don't have more than a cup of coffee, one cup in the morning and one cup in the evening if you want it. Uh, you know, I, I don't look forward to that, but everything he instructs me to do, it's for my health. It's for my well-being. And, you know, if, if that is true, not only for my physical doctor, how much more should I trust the divine physician? How much more should I anticipate his supervision and his intervention in my life as the divine physician. So we'll be visiting Capernaum today. As soon as the synagogue service is over, Jesus and the crowd immediately enter into Peter's house. Now I've been to Capernaum and I can tell you that we know exactly where Peter's house is and where the synagogue is. It's one of those sites that we know for sure that this is the place. And literally it only takes 30 seconds to a minute to walk from the synagogue to Peter's house. So, so they enter uh, to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and Jesus goes to her. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up and she's healed. And then she begins to serve her guest in the home. And here's what happens next in Luke 4 verses 41, 40 and 41. As the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with the various kinds of diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on each of them and cured them. Demons also came out of many shouting, you're the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. Okay, the sun has set, which means the Sabbath is over. Sabbath restrictions are lifted and the people can now move freely. So the whole city brings the sick and the demon possessed to Jesus and he cures them. It's a beautiful story because the people had heard there was a healer among them. But it's more than just a beautiful story of Jesus as a healer. We've got to remember that the Gospels are not just mere historical documents, just recording and reporting the facts. The Gospels, first and foremost, are theological documents with theological message to us. The evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all are theologians. They're not just journalists recording the facts. 
Sadly, some think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are just uh, where you get the story, but that you get your theology from Paul. And once you put that kind of gap between the Gospels and Paul, you're going to get Paul all wrong. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are every bit as much theologians as the Apostle Paul. All their Gospels are different, intended for different audiences, constructed in different ways for different purposes. Now, all the Gospels present Jesus as a healer, healing all kinds of sickness and disease. This is the single thing that caused his fame to spread so rapidly throughout the land. Jesus still heals people today, but healing is not something where we have a formula that we can get Jesus to heal whomever we want, whenever we want, every time. It just doesn't work that, that way. I've had very close friends who have passed on prematurely. The whole world was praying for them. The saints were praying for them. The biggest prayer meeting I ever had in my life, I called a prayer meeting for an individual in our church in Morgantown, West Virginia. The church was packed. That's how much he was loved. And half the church was there because of his influence. But yet God took him home when that brain tumor took his life. So it just doesn't work that that way. From now until the age to come, healing is going to be one of those areas of mystery. And that's okay. That's okay. Jesus was and is a healer, but the primary reason Jesus is depicted in the Gospels as a healer is spiritual, it's theological. The Gospel writers, again, are just not reporting the facts. Jesus went here and there and he did this and he did that and he healed that disease and this disease. That's true enough. But the Gospel writers have a much larger and, and broader motive in recording and telling these healing stories. So here's the question. What is the universal sickness, the illness, the infection, the virus that has affected us all? And no, it's not COVID-19. It's sin. Sin is the disease, the sickness, the illness, the virus that has infected and affected every person on earth. So I want to give a a definition to sin this morning. Now, we've heard plenty of definitions for sin, and I'm not talking about this morning sin as an act or sin as a disobedience of a known law of God. I'm talking about sin as a disease that is responsible for our acts of rebellion and sin. So what is sin? Here's how I want to define sin this morning. Sin is a distortion of our will and our being that puts us on a wrong trajectory. Sin is a distortion of our will and being that puts us on a wrong trajectory. See, one of the New Testament Greek words for sin is hamartia. That means missing the mark. Something's happened to our will and our being that puts us off on a wrong trajectory. And if we keep following that course, that wrong trajectory, we become who we were never meant to be. We will not reach our telos, the goal, the purpose. We will not become the person that God created and meant for us to be. Now, sin is better understood as a sickness of the soul rather than a forensic legal problem. By that, I mean we need a healer more than we need a lawyer when it comes to sin. We need a doctor. Now, we can think of Jesus as a lawyer. We can use that metaphor 
of Jesus as an advocate. We can find that in the scripture, but it's not the only metaphor, nor the most comprehensive metaphor for salvation. It's much better to see Jesus as our physician, as our healer. Now you may ask, why? Well, thanks for asking. <laughs> Even if you didn't ask, I'm going to tell you, okay? <laughs> why? Because Jesus doesn't just want to change our legal status by declaring us not guilty. He wants to restore us. He wants to restore me. He wants to restore you. He wants to restore our soul, our being. He wants to restore his image in us. Now, a lawyer can get us out of a jam, but Jesus wants to do more than just get us out of a jam. He wants to rescue us. He doesn't just want to get us off the hook. He wants to cure our soul. A lawyer treats our legal standing, but a doctor treats us, our being. And that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. You see, in our, in our uh, religious Christian world, we have the Eastern Church and we have the Western Church. The Western Church spoke predominantly Latin, and that's the Catholic and Protestant West that we know as Christians. That's that's where we live in the West. The Eastern Church spoke Greek. They maintained the the language of the New Testament. The East and West developed a bit differently theologically and liturgically, in large part because of the differences in languages. In the Catholic and Protestant West, the church was mostly, has mostly thought of sin as a kind of legal problem. What do we do with our guilt? How do we get rid of that guilt? We're guilty. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to get that not guilty verdict in our spiritual lives? And in that stream of thought, our biggest problem then becomes our standing before God as one who is guilty. So we need an advocate. We need a lawyer. We need an attorney. We need Jesus as that divine lawyer. So in 1054 AD, the Greek-speaking East and the Latin-speaking West go their separate ways in the first major division of Christianity. Up until 1054, there were no different denominations. There, it was just the church. First major division. The church in the East becomes the Orthodox Church. The church in the West becomes the Roman Catholic Church. It was called the Great Schism. The East was more inclined to see sin as a sickness. Now, both are true metaphors. Both are true. But for us in the East, especially in American evangelicals, we need, I believe, a more therapeutic metaphor for sin. You see, sin has its own punishment. No one ever gets away with anything. They may think they're getting away with it, but they're not. You see, the wages of sin is death. Always has been, always will be. Death to relationships, death to, death to true joy, death to happiness, death to families. Wages of sin is death. If we follow that wrong trajectory, that distortion of our will and our being, it has consequences in this life and the next. This age and the age to come. You see, in our present world, we are far more punished by our sins than for our sins. So what we need is a healing by our divine healer. When we reduce salvation to being mostly just a verdict of not guilty, we really fail to treat the real problem. Forgiveness is there. Hallelujah. Aren't you thankful for forgiveness? 
I love forgiveness. I love the idea and experience of forgiveness and justification. Being adopted into God's family, but forgiveness and being declared not guilty is not the essence of salvation. Justification is just a step, a necessary step, but just a step in the process of our salvation. You see, we have been saved. We are being saved and we will be saved. It has past, present and future dynamics. In 1517, we go up the ladder now about 500 years from the first great division. Martin Luther published his 95 Theses. The second major division in Christianity began. We know it as the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformers took understanding Jesus mainly as a lawyer to a whole new level. But thankfully, being influenced by the Eastern Church, John and Charles Wesley came along on the heels of those Reformers and brought balance back to the Western Church's understanding of salvation. They resurrected the truth of Scripture that Jesus is both lawyer and physician. They emphasized not only justification, not just being declared not guilty and being forgiven of the committed acts of sin, but they also taught sanctification, the healing of sin, the disease, the sin nature. They not only taught imputed righteousness, but actual imparted righteousness that we, God can actually begin to restore his image in us. So not only are we declared not guilty, but the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit starts that process of healing, our healing, of being made whole, of human and spiritual flourishing of our being. The word shalom encapsulates that. Shalom. Shalom begins to happen. Now, Dr. Luke, from whom we get our scripture this morning, he wrote two volumes. First volume is the gospel of Luke. The second volume is Acts, the book of Acts. And we see he deals more with this cure for sin in the second book when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church and he comes to indwell us. He comes to live in us. The essence of salvation is holiness. Hebrews 13, 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Now, when I say the word holy or holiness, a lot of people find that off-putting. If I, as a pastor, announced a 10-week series on holiness, a lot of people would think, oh, brother, you know, this is going to be boring. This is going to be something I don't want to hear. And that's because legalism sometimes masquerades itself as holiness. And because people have suffered legalisms that run the gamut from the petty to the truly abusive, people sometimes are put off and have a negative association with holiness. And I found that true in my own tribe, you know, our holiness tradition in the Church of the Nazarene. I've seen plenty of it grown up in the church and churches I've been part of and pastored. And I'm, I'm going to urge us not to do that this morning. You see, because we need to recover that word. It's a beautiful word. It's a good word. Think of it like this. Holiness is wholeness. It's human flourishing of the whole person, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to be saints, which means we're called to be holy ones. That doesn't mean we are called to be super pious ones. It means we're to be whole in our being. We're not to miss the mark, but we're to reach our destiny, our telos, our purpose, our goal, and become that person God intends for us to be. A person in your own uniqueness. Because there's no one else 
like you. In your own uniqueness, you are to bear the image of God. Now, what we all have in common is that we were created, uh, we came to this world as, as, as sinners. Uh, we were created in the image of God in order to bear the image of God, but that image was distorted at the fall. And Jesus has come to restore God's image in us. Someone said, and I don't remember who, there is only one real tragedy, and that is not to become a saint. God wants you to become who you really are. Soren Kierkegaard, a, a, a Danish theologian, said, Now by the help of God, I shall become myself. Holiness, of which forgiveness is a part, is the essence of salvation. Holiness is a good word. So what prevents us from being holy is this infection, this disease, this virus, this sin. And so what do we need? We need a divine physician. We need a healer. There in Luke chapter 4, verses 42 and 44, Jesus healed all the folks that came to him at Capernaum. The next morning he gets up at sunrise and he goes out alone to pray and the disciples are going frantic. They're, they're searching for him. And after they find him, they, Jesus says, hey, boys, it's time to hit the road. I, I didn't come just to preach the gospel here. I've come to, to, to preach the gospel and throughout the land. And so he goes on a preaching tour. They hit the road through the towns and villages of Galilee, spreading the gospel and healing the sick. Move on to chapter 5, verse 12. In one of these villages, a leper comes and bows down before Jesus. Now, this leopard is not supposed to be in town. So it's a daring move on his part. He bows down and he says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. And then being moved with compassion, he touched the leper and immediately the leper was healed. You see, leprosy was the most dreaded disease of Jesus' day. Not only because of what it did to the body, but because of its social stigma. Lepers were excluded from society. They were forced to live in isolation, away from their village, away from their synagogue, away from their families. No birthday parties could be attended for their kids. No Passover celebrations. No Little League games. If they saw anything happen, it had to be from a distance. They were shunned. The fact that Jesus healed lepers by touching them has a profound spiritual message for us. Of course, Jesus could heal a physical skin disease. That's not the whole message. The spiritual message is that Jesus is the one who has compassion on the untouchables. Jesus will touch the moral lepers when other people won't. How do we reclaim holiness? Well, it's a problem because of the Pharisees. The Pharisees then and the Pharisees now. These Pharisees claim to be holy, but they're not. Pharisees tried to demonstrate their so-called holiness, their presumed holiness. They tried to prove their holiness by how zealous they are in rejecting and ostracizing other kinds of sinners. I'm talking about then and now. Then there are those who, who prove that they, they try to prove to us how righteous they are, how holy they are, how just they are by how zealously they reject and ostracize certain kinds of other sinners. That's not holiness, that's self-righteousness. That's scapegoating. And Jesus demonstrates holiness to us by showing compassion to those who are ostracized. He touches them. 
Jesus just doesn't associate with moral lepers. He calls them to repentance. He calls for a change of mind that leads to a change of life. So the question for the followers of Jesus, that's you and me, because we want to follow Jesus and not the Pharisees, we have to ask ourselves the question, who are today's moral lepers and how do we treat them? So Jesus finishes the tour and he heads back home to Capernaum. The whole town's excited. Chapter 5, verse 17, you'll find there he, he begins to teach in a house and it's filled to overflowing, people standing on the inside, the outside. There's this man who's paralyzed. He can't get in, but he has four friends. We all need friends, like the friend of this paralyzed man. They decide to take their friend to Jesus. They can't get in, so they put him on a cot. They take him up to the roof. They start digging around and uh, removing some shingles or whatever is on the roof at that time. And they lower him in front of Jesus. And when Jesus sees the faith of his four friends, he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, of course, the Sadducees and Pharisees are there. They're upset at Jesus because Jesus just willy-nilly declares his sins forgiven. And they call it blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, bingo. <laughs> Jesus knows what they're muttering and what they're thinking. So he just says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now for me, it'd be easier for me to say your sins are forgiven because how are you going to prove it, right? <laughs> I tell someone, rise up and walk, there's got to be some proof in the pudding. But for the son of God, it's no different. So Jesus says to them, what's easier? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? But that you may know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralyzed man, get up. Get up and walk. After that, Luke chapter 5, verse 27, after this, he goes out and he sees a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of, of, of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, if I had a, a text this morning, a key verse, this would be it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, everywhere Jesus goes, crowd gathers. People want to be around him. Uh, so I have to ask myself the question, what, what does effective evangelism look like today in the 21st century? Now, I think because of the discipleship factor, I think that effective evangelism mostly looks like bringing people to good churches where Jesus is present, where Jesus is proclaimed, where there's health because it's a Jesus-centered church, Evangelism looks like these four friends bringing their friends to Jesus. It's friends bringing their friends to church. And when they come and see, our friends will discover that salvation is not just this personal, private transaction between them and Jesus alone. It's being gathered into a community of people where Jesus is healing and restoring, where Jesus 
is giving our lives back to us the way they were meant to be. Now, other than Jesus commanding it, which that's important, it's a command, but baptism is an important uh, as a public confession, a public induction into the family of God. And not only into the universal church, but into and by a local body of believers where there is mutual accountability and encouragement and shared ministry and fellowship. All those are important. All those are important parts of becoming like Christ in our discipleship. So there's a crowd, four guys lower their friend to Jesus. Jesus heals him. Jesus goes out again by the sea and crowds follow him there. And on the way to the sea, he calls Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. Now, tax collectors also are moral lepers. They take advantage of people. They are traitors. The tax collectors are colluding with the Roman Empire and getting rich in doing it at the expense of their own kinsmen. They are hated. They are loathed and often the target of violence by the zealots. You see, in Jesus' day, they are the people who are hated the most, even more than the Romans. They're irreligious. They're not pious. They don't observe the law. They are moral lepers, and Jesus sees one of them and says, follow me. You see, Matthew's life had been on the wrong trajectory because of sin, Hamartia, missing the mark. His arrow is going the wrong way. And Jesus sees him and says to him, follow me, because Jesus wants to change the trajectory of not only Matthew's life, but my life and your life, all of our lives. So Matthew accepts the challenge. He accepts the invitation to follow Jesus. I've been on this trajectory long enough. Now I'm going to go in that direction. So Matthew throws a big dinner party. Guess who he invites? He invites all of his tax collector friends because he's rich. What does evangelism look like? It's like inviting our friends to a place where Jesus is. So Matthew invites his tax collector friends and other notorious sinners. And that's who comes. The worst of the worst. The moral lepers. The ones the pious would shun and reject and ostracize. And Jesus is comfortable with that. He's there. He doesn't partake of that sin, but they are not influencing Jesus, but Jesus is influencing them. But the Pharisees are upset, of course. They always do. They're murmuring. And this seems to be a recurring problem throughout the ministry of Jesus because Jesus just seems to always be hanging out with the wrong people. So they say to the disciples, why does your rabbi hang out with sinners? Why does he spend time with the worst of the worst? He even eats with them. We're holy. We stay away from them. Now, they're not holy. They're self-righteous. And Jesus overhears this and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinner. Jesus treats sinners as if they are sick. Jesus sees sinners and says, they need a doctor and I'm the doctor and I'm able and I'm going to treat your sickness. Now, Here's the good thing about acknowledging that we're sinners. It's a diagnosis. Now we can come to Jesus. 
We qualify because Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are sick and need a physician, not the well. If we confess there's something wrong with me, you know, there's a distortion of my will and being that keeps taking me in the wrong direction. Jesus says, then I came for you. Let's have a closer look. Let's see what we can do for you. Just like when I go for that annual physical with my doctor. Let me see how I can help. Get all your blood work done a week before you come. We're going to sit down. We're going to examine you. And we're going to see how I can help you. Jesus says, come, let's, let's have a closer look, Raynard. Let's see how I can help you in this attitude, in this situation, in what you're struggling with. You see, we're born sinners, but we're called to be saints. Yes, if we've been declared not guilty, that's beautiful. If you've been forgiven, that's great. But we still have a sin sickness, and that's why we need the great physician. So don't hide your sin sickness from Jesus. Confess it. And beyond forgiveness, he'll begin to treat you. He'll, he'll heal you. He wants to cure you. Cure you. And after we make that, that second commitment to Jesus as not only our lawyer, but our physician, we enter into a long-term treatment plan with Jesus. He keeps us on track. If we'll just be present to him. If we'll just keep showing up. If we'll just be humble and honest. You know, if you lie to your doctor, your doctor is not going to be able to help you that much. Now, I have been guilty in the past. Oh, I got to see the doctor next week. I better, I better do some exercises this week. So when he asks, have you been doing your exercises? I say, oh, yeah, man, I've been doing my exercises. I've been guilty of that. Now, that kind of action doesn't do me a bit of good. Doesn't help my health. At all. It just makes me look good to the doctor. But the divine physician knows my condition to start with. I can't pull any wool over his eyes. So if I'm that way with Jesus, then he really can't heal me. But if I'm honest and I say, yeah, Jesus, I need some help in this area. Man, I had a stinking attitude this week. Now that person there, I mean, I couldn't, I just couldn't stand, you know, he's so much different than I am. He comes and says, okay, come and sit with me, be with me. You see, I didn't come to condemn you. My divine physician says to me, he says, I've come to heal you. I've come to help you. I've come to help your human flourishing, to be all that you can be in this age and the age to come. So what's the good news? Sin is a sickness and Jesus is the healer. I could have just said that a long time ago. We could already be at our lunch table, right? That's how you sum it up. Jesus, sin is our sickness. Jesus is a healer. Everyone is born with it. It's the most contagious of all diseases, but the good news is that Jesus is the healer. He's the divine physician. So let's draw near to Jesus, shall we? Let's bow our heads together before we go today. Good place just to talk to the Lord and be quiet before him. Search our hearts. I'd ask how many of you are not only willing to follow Jesus as your lawyer, as the one who declares you're not guilty, as the one who declares your sins forgiven, but you're willing to submit to and follow Jesus as your divine doctor. You're willing to go into that exam room. You're even willing to lay down on that surgical table sometimes to allow him to do some, some surgery on your heart and your attitudes and your life and your habits. How many 
Are you willing? How many of you are willing to humble yourself before this divine healer? Humble, that's a good word. Somewhere I heard someone say, we tend to divide the world into good and evil, rich and poor, powerful and weak, but Jesus divides the world into the proud and the humble. And Lord, your scripture reminds us that, God, you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. You give us all the grace we need when we humble ourselves before you. Perhaps you've humbled yourself before the Savior in order to be forgiven, in order to be adopted into his family, declared not guilty for sins committed. But have you humbled yourself before the Savior as your divine healer so he can deal with the disease and the root of sin, not just the symptoms, not just the acts, but sin as nature. Sin as the wrong trajectory of your life and being. Have you allowed him to, to remove that bent towards sin and to replace it with a bent toward righteousness, toward him? Won't you allow Dr. Jesus to keep your life on the right trajectory? So you can reach your destination, your goal, your purpose, your telos of being the person you were created to be. God so much wants you to experience shalom, which is that human flourishing of our body, soul, mind, and spirit. The trajectory of our life has consequences in this age and the age to come. Has he set you on the right trajectory? Father, we ask ourselves that question. We submit ourselves. We commit ourselves. We humble ourselves before you just once again to allow your Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. Lord, may we discover we can trust any area of struggle with you. We can trust any propensity towards sin, any hidden sin, anything that has a, a pull on us that's weighing us down. Lord, may we begin to sit with you and allow you to do your work. Lord, I thank you for the gospel writers and, and the life of Christ and the fact that he is making all things new. God is making all things new through Christ and the cross. We're continuing to make all things new in our lives and recreate in us that divine image of your son. May we truly become more and more like Jesus as we walk with you every day, allowing you to keep us on that right trajectory. Give us the desire to follow you and know how we love you because you first loved us. Lord, may we continue to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.